Chapter 12, Part 2 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was Christmas time, and two friends came down to stay at the cottage with the Summers. Those were the days before America joined the Allies. The man friend arrived with a whole parcel of American dainties buckwheat meal and sweet potatoes and maple sugar. The woman friend brought a good basket of fruit. They were to have a Christmas in the lonely cottage in spite of everything. It was Christmas Eve and a pouring black wet night outside. Nowhere can it be so black as on the edge of a Cornish moor above the western sea near the rocks where the ancient worshippers used to sacrifice. The darkness of men hears. The American woman friend was crouching at the fire making fudge. The man was away in his room when a thundering knock at the door. Ah, Lord! The burly police sergeant and his bicycle. Sorry to trouble you, sir, but is an American, a Mr. Monsell, stopping here with you? He is. Can I have a word with him? Yes. Won't you come in? Into the cozy cottage room with the American girl at the fire her face flushed with the fudge-making, entered the big, burly, ruddy police sergeant, his black Macintosh cape streaming wet. "'We give you a terrible lot of trouble, I'm sorry to say,' said Harriet, ironically. "'What an awful night for you to have to come all these miles. I'm sure it isn't our doing.' "'No, ma'am, I know that. It's the doing of people who like to meddle. These military orders, they take some keeping pace with.' "'I'm sure they do.' Harriet was all sympathy. So he, too, was goaded by these military canal. Summers fetched the American friend, and he was asked to produce papers and give information. He gave it, being an honorable citizen and a well-bred American, with complete song foid. At that moment, Summers would have given a lot to be American, too, and not English. But wait! Those were early days when America was still being jeered at for standing out and filling her pockets. She was not yet the intensely loved ally. The police sergeant was pleasant as ever. He apologized again and went back into the black and pouring night. So much for Christmas Eve. But that's not the end of the horrid affair, as the song says. When Monsell got back to London, he was arrested and conveyed to Scotland Yard. There examined, stripped, naked, his clothes taken away. Then he was kept for a night in a cell. Next evening, liberated and advised to return to America. Poor Monsell, and he was so very anti-German, so very pro-British. It was a blow for him. He did not leave off being anti-German, but he was much less pro-British. And after all, it was wartime when these things must happen, we are told such a wartime that let loose the foulest feelings of a mob, particularly of gentlemen, to torture any single independent man as a mob always tortures the isolated and independent. In despair, Summers thought he would go to America. He had passports. He was rejected. They had no use for him, and he had no use for them. So he posted his passports to the foreign office for the military permit to depart. It was January, and there was a thin film of half-melted snow, like silver, on the fields and the path. A white static arrested morning there was in the west of Cornwall, with the moors looking primeval, 
and the huge granite boulders bulging out of the earth like presences. So easy to realize men worshipping stones. It is not the stone, it is the mystery of the powerful pre-human earth showing its might. And all, this morning, static, arrested in a cold milky whiteness like death, the west lost in the sea. A man culminates in intense moments. This was one of Summer's white, death-like moments as he walked home from the tiny post office in the hamlet on the wintry morning after he had posted his passports asking for visas to go to New York. It was like walking in death, a strange arrested land of death. Never had he known that feeling before, as if he were a ghost in the after-death, walking a strange, pale, static, cold world. It almost frightened him. Have I done wrong? he asked himself. Am I wrong to leave my country and go to America? It was then as if he had left his country, and that was like death, a still static corporate death. America was the death of his own country in him, he realized that. But he need not have bothered. The Foreign Office kept his passports and did not so much as answer him. He waited in vain. Spring came, and one morning the news at Asquith was out of the government that Lloyd George was in and this was another of Summer's crises. He felt he must go away from the house, away from everywhere. And as he walked, clear as a voice out of the moors, came a voice saying, It is the end of England. It is the end of the old England. It is finished. England will never be England any more. Cornwall is a country that makes a man psyche. The longer he stayed, the more intensely it had that effect on Summer's. It was as if he were developing second sight and second hearing. He would go out into the blackness of night and listen to the blackness and call, call softly for the spirits, the presences he felt coming downhill from the moors in the night. Tuathadanan, he would call softly. Tuathadanan. Be with me, be with me. And it was as if he felt them come. And so this morning the voice struck into his consciousness. It is the end of England. So he walked along blindly up the valley and on the moors. He loved the country intensely. It seemed to answer him. But his consciousness was all confused. In his mind he did not at all see why it should be the end of England. Mr. Asquith was called Old Wade and Sea. And truly English liberalism had proved a slobbery affair. All sad sympathy with everybody and no iron backbone these years repulsively humble too on its own account it was no time for christian humility and yet it was true to its great creed whereas lloyd george summers knew nothing about lloyd george a little welsh lawyer not an englishman at all he had no real significance in richard lovett's soul only summers gradually came to believe that all jews and all celts even whilst they espoused the cause of england subtly lived to bring about the last humiliation of the great old england they could never do so if england would not be humiliated but with an england fairly offering herself to ignominy where was the help let the celts work out their subtlety if england wanted to be betrayed in the deeper issues Perhaps Jesus wanted to be betrayed. He did. He chose Judas. Well, the story could have no other ending. The war wave had broken right over England now, right over Cornwall. Probably throughout the ages, Cornwall had not been finally swept, submerged by any English spirit. Now it happened. 
the accursed later war spirit. Now the tales began to go round full tilt against Summers. A chimney of his house was tired to keep out the damp. That was a signal to the Germans. He and his wife carried food to supply German submarines. They had secret stores of petrol in the cliff. They were watched and listened to, spied on, by men lying behind the low stone fences. It is a job the Cornish loved. They didn't even mind being caught at it, lying behind a fence with field glasses, watching through a hole in the dry stone wall a man with a lass on the edge of the moors. Perhaps they were proud of it. If a man wanted to hear what was said about him or anything, he lay behind a wall at the field corners where the youths talked before they parted and went indoors late of a Saturday night, a whole intense life of spying going on all the time. Harriet could not hang out a towel on a bush or carry out the slops in the empty landscape of moors and sea without her every movement being followed by invisible eyes. And at evening, when the doors were shut, valiant men lay under the windows to listen to the conversation in the cozy little room. And bitter enough were the things they said. And damnatory, the two summers. Richard did not hold himself in. And he talked, too, with the men on the farm, openly, for they had exactly the same anti-military feeling as himself, and they simply loathed the thought of being compelled to serve. Most men in the West, Summers thought, would have committed murder to escape, if murder would have helped them. It wouldn't. He loved the people at the farm, and the men kindled their rage together. And again, Summers' farmer friend warned him how he was being watched, but Summers would not heed. What can they do to me, he said. I am not a spy in any way whatsoever. There is nothing they can do to me. I make no public appearance at all. I am just by myself. What can they do to me? Let them go to hell. He refused to be watchful, guarded, furtive, like the people around, saying double things as occasion arose, and hiding their secret thoughts and secret malignancy. He still believed in the freedom of the individual. Yes, freedom of the individual. He was aware of the mass of secret feeling against him. Yet the people he came into daily contact with liked him, almost loved him. So he kept on defying the rest and went along blithe and open as ever, saying what he really felt or holding his tongue. Enemies. How could he have any personal enemies? He had never done harm to any of these people. He never even felt any harm. He did not believe in personal enemies. It was just the military. Enemies he had, however, people he didn't know and hadn't even spoken to. Enemies who hated him like poison. They hated him because he was free, because of his different, unafraid face. They hated him because he wasn't cowed, as they were all cowed. They hated him for his intimacy at the farm in the hamlet. For each farm was bitter jealous of each other. Yet he never believed he had any personal enemies, and he had all the West hating him like poison. He realized once when two men came down the moorland by road, officers and cocky, on a motor bicycle, and went trying the door of the next cottage, which was shut up. Summers went to the door in all simplicity. Did you want me? he asked. No, we didn't want you, replied one of the fellows in a genteel voice and a tone like a slap in the face. Summers spoken to as if he were the lowest of the low. He shut his cottage door. Was it so? 
had they willfully spoken to him like that. He would not believe it. But inwardly he knew it was so. That was what they intended to convey to him, that he was the lowest of the low. He began even to feel guilty under this mass of poisonous condemnation, and he realized that they had come on their own to get into the other cottage and see if there were some wireless installation or something else criminal. But it was fast and tight, and apparently they gave up their design of breaking in, for they turned their motorcycle and went away. Day followed day in this tension of suspense. Submarines were off the coast. Harriet saw a ship sunk away to sea. Horrible excitement, and the postmen asking sly questions to try to catch Summers out. Increased rigor of coast watching, and no light must be shown. Yet along the high road on the hillside above, plainer than any house light, danced the lights of a cart moving or slowly sped the light of a bicycle on the blackness. Then a Spanish coal vessel, 3,000 tons, ran on the rocks in a fog straight under the cottage. She was completely wrecked. Summers watched the waves break over her. Her coal washed ashore and the farmers carried it up the cliffs in sacks. There was to be a calling up now and a re-examination of every man. Summers felt a crisis approaching. The ordeal was to go through once more. The first rejection meant nothing. There were certain reservations. He had himself examined again by a doctor. The strain told on his heart as well as his breathing. He sent in his note to the authorities, a reply. You must present yourself for examination as ordered. He knew that if he was really ever summoned to any service and finally violated, he would be broken and die. But patience. In the meanwhile, he went to see his people, the long journey up the west, changing at Plymouth and Bristol and Birmingham up to Derby. Glamorous west of England, if a man were free. He sat through the whole day, very still, looking at the world, very still, gone very far inside himself, traveling through this England in spring. He loved it so much, but it was in the grip of something monstrous, not English, and he was almost gripped too. As it was, by making himself far away inside himself, he contained himself and was still. He arrived late in Derby, Saturday night, and no train for the next ten miles. But luckily there was a motor bus going out to the outlying villages. Derby was very dark, like a savage town, a feeling of savagery. And at last the bus was ready, full of young miners, more or less intoxicated. The bus was crammed, a solid jam of men, sitting on each other's knees, standing blocked and wedged. There was no outside accommodation. And inside were jammed eighteen more men than was allowed. It was like being pressed into one block of corned beef. The bus ran six miles without stopping through an absolutely dark country, zeppelin black and having one feeble light of its own. The roads were unmended and very bad, but the bus charged on madly at full speed, like a dim consciousness madly charging through the night, and the mass of colliers swayed with the bus, intoxicated into a living block, and with high, loud, wailing voices they sang. There's a long, long trail a-winding into the land of my dreams where the nightingales are singing and the, this ghastly trailing song like death itself. The colliers seem to tear it out of their bowels in a long, wild chant. They too all loathed the war, loathed it, and this awful song. 
they subsided and somebody started Tipperary. It's a long, long way to Tipperary. It's a long, long way to go. But Tipperary was already felt as something of a Jonah, a bad luck song, so it did not last long. The miserable songs, with their long, long ways that ended in sheer lugubriousness, real death wails. These four battle songs, the wail of a dying humanity. Somebody started, Goodbye, don't cry, wipe the tear, baby dear, from your eye, for it's hard to part, I know, I'll be tickled to death to go, goodbye, don't cry. But the others didn't know this ragtime, and they weren't yet in the mood. They drifted drunkenly back to the ineffable howl of, There's a long, long trail, a black, wild Saturday night. These were the collier youths Summers had been to school with, approximately. As they tore their bowels with their singing, they tore his. But as he sat squashed far back among all that coated flesh in the dimmest glim of a light that only made darkness more substantial, he felt like some strange isolated cell in some tensely packed organism that was hurtling through chaos into oblivion. The colliers. He was more at one with them. But they were blind, ventral. Once they broke loose, heaven knows what it would be. The Midlands, the theater in Nottingham, the pretense of amusement and the feeling of murder in the dark, dreadful city. In the daytime, these songs, this horrible long trail and goodbye and way down in Tennessee, they tried to keep up their spirits with this ragtime Tennessee. But there was murder in the air in the Midlands, among the colliers, in the theater particularly, a shut-in, awful feeling of souls fit for murder. London, mid-war London, nothing but war, war. Lovely sunny weather and bombs at midday in the Strand. Summery weather, Berkshire, aeroplanes, springtime. He was as if blind. He must hurry the long journey back to Harriet and Cornwall. Yes, he had his papers. He must present himself again at Bodmin Barracks. He was just simply summoned as if he were already conscripted, but he knew he must be medically examined. He went, left home at seven in the morning to catch the train. Harriet watched him go across the field. She was left alone in a strange country. I shall be back tonight, he said. It was a still morning, remote, as if one were not in the world. On the hill down to the station he lingered. Shall I not go? Shall I not go? he said to himself. He wanted to break away, but what good? He would only be arrested and lost. Yet he had dawdled his time, he had to run hard to catch the train in the end. This time things went much more quickly. He was only two hours in the barracks. He was examined, he could tell they knew about him and disliked him. He was put in class C-3, unfit for military service, but conscripted for light non-military duties. There were no rejections now. Still, it was good enough. There were thousands of seamen, men who wanted to have jobs as seamen, so they were not very likely to fetch him up. He would only be a nuisance anyhow. That was clear all round. Through the little window at the back of their ancient granite cottage, Harriet, peeping wistfully out to sea, poor Harriet, she was always frightened now, saw Richard coming across the fields, home, walking fast, and with that intent look about him that she half feared. She ran out in a sort of fear, then waited. She would wait. 
He saw her face very bright with fear and joy at seeing him back, very beautiful in his eyes, the only real thing, perhaps, left in his world. "'Here you are, so early,' she cried. "'I didn't expect you. The dinner isn't ready yet. Well?' "'C3,' he replied. "'It's all right.' "'I knew it would be,' she cried, seizing his arm and hugging it to her. They went into the cottage to finish cooking the evening meal and immediately one of the farm girls came running up to see what it was. Oh, C3, so you're all right, Mr. Summers. Glad, I'm glad. Harriet never forgot the straight, intent beeline for home which he was making when she peeped out of that little window unaware. So another respite. They were not going to touch him. They knew he would be a firebrand in their army, a dangerous man to put with any group of men. They would leave him alone, C3. He had almost entirely left off writing now and spent most of his days working on the farm. Again the neighbors were jealous. Burian got his labor cheap. He'd never have got his hay in but for Mr. Summers, they said. And that was another reason for wishing to remove Richard Lovett. Work went like steam when he was on Trendanan Farm and he was too thick with the Burians, much too thick. And John Thomas Burian rather bragged of Mr. Summers at market and how he, Richard Lovett, wasn't afraid of any of them, etc., etc., that he wasn't going to serve anybody, etc., and that nobody could make him, etc., etc. But Richard drifted away this summer onto the land, into the weather, into Cornwall. He worked out of doors all the time. He ceased to care inwardly. He began to drift away from himself. He was very thick with John Thomas and nearly always at the farm. Harriet was a great deal alone, and he seemed to be drifting away, drifting back to the common people, becoming a working man of the lower classes. It had its charm for Harriet, this aspect of him, careless, rather reckless, in old clothes and an old battered hat. He kept his sharp wits, but his spirit became careless, lost its concentration. "'I declare,' said John Thomas, as Summers appeared in the cornfield, "'you look more like one of us every day.' and he looked with a bright Cornish eye at Summer's careless, belted figure and old jacket. The speech struck Richard. It sounded half triumphant, half mocking. He thinks I'm coming down in the world. It is half a rebuke, thought Summers to himself, but he was half pleased, and half he was rebuked. Corn harvest lasted long and was a happy time for them all. It went well, well. Also, from London occasionally, a young man came down and stayed at the inn in the church town, some young friend of Summers who hated the army and the government and was generally discontented, and so fitfully came as an adherent to Richard Lovett. One of these was James Sharp, a young Edinburgh man with a moderate income of his own, interested in music. Sharp was hardly more than a lad, but he was the type of lowland Scotsman who is half an artist, not more, and so can never get on in the ordinary respectable life, rebels against it all the time, and yet can never get away from it or free himself from its dictates. Sharp had taken a house further along the coast, brought his piano down from London and sufficient furniture and a housekeeper, and insisted, like a morose bird, that he wanted to be alone. But he wasn't really morose, and he didn't want really to be alone. His old house, rather ramshackle, stood back a little way from the cliffs, where the moor came down savagely to the sea past a deserted tin mine. 
It was lonely, wild, and in a savage way, poetic enough. Here Sharp installed himself for the moment, to be alone with his music and his general discontent. Of course he excited the wildest comments. He had window curtains of different colors, so, of course, here was plain signaling to the German submarines. Spies, the lot of them. When still another young man of the same set came and took a bungalow on the moors, West Cornwall decided that it was being delivered straight into German hands. Not that West Cornwall would really have minded that so terribly. No, it wasn't that it feared the Germans. It was that it hated the sight of these recalcitrant young men. And Summers, the instigator, the arch-spy, the responsible little swine with his beard, Summers, meanwhile, began to chuckle a bit to himself. After all, he was getting the better of the military canal. Canal. Canaglia. Schweinerei. He loathed them in all the languages he could lay his tongue to. So Summers and Harriet went to stay a weekend with Sharp at Trevenna, as the house was called. Sharp was a C2 man on perpetual tenterhooks. He had decided that if he were ever summoned to serve, he would just disappear. The summers drove over, only three or four miles, on the Saturday afternoon, and the three wandered on the moor and down the cliff. No one was in sight, but how many pairs of eyes were watching, who knows? Sharp lighting a cigarette for Harriet was an indication of untold immorality. Evening came, the lamps were lit and the incriminating curtains carefully drawn. The three sat before the fire in the long music room and tried to be cozy and jolly, but there was something wrong with the mood. After dinner, it was even worse. Harriet curled herself up on the sofa with a cigarette. Sharp spread himself in profound melancholy in his big chair. Summer sat back nearer the window. They talked in occasional snatches in mockery of the enemy that surrounded them. Then Summer sang to himself in an irritating way one German folk song after another, not in a songful, but in a defiant way. Am Cam von Thoreau. Schatz, mein Schatz. Right nicht, so weit von mir. Zu Strasbourg auf die Schanz, da fiel mein Unglück ein. This went on till Sharp asked him to stop. And in the silence, the tense and irritable silence that followed, came a loud bang. All got up in alarm and followed Sharp through the dining room to the small entrance room where a dim light was burning, a lieutenant and three sordid men in the dark behind him, one with a lantern. Mr. Sharp, the authoritative and absolutely in the right voice of the puppy lieutenant. Sharp took his pipe from his mouth and said laconically, Yes? You've a light burning in your window facing the sea. I think not. There's only one window, and that's on the passage where I never go, upstairs. A light was showing from that window ten minutes ago. I don't think it can have been. It was, and the stern puppy lieutenant turned to his followers, who clustered there in the dark. Yes, there was a light there ten minutes since, chimed the followers. I don't see how it's possible, persisted Sharp. Oh, well, there is sufficient evidence that it was. What other persons have you in the house? And this officer and gentleman stepped into the room, followed by his three Cornish weeds, one of whom had fallen into a ditch in his assiduous serving of his country, and was a sorry sight. Of course, Harriet saw chiefly him and had to laugh. 
There's Mrs. Waugh, the housekeeper, but she's in bed. The party now stood and eyed one another, the lieutenant with his three sorry braves on one hand, sharp Summers and Harriet in an old dress of soft silk on the other. Well, Mr. Sharp, the light was seen. I don't see how it was possible. We've none of us been upstairs, and Mrs. Waugh has been in bed for half an hour. Is there a curtain to the passage window? put in Summers quietly. He had helped Sharp in setting up house. I don't believe there is, said Sharp. I forgot all about it, as it wasn't in a room, and I never go to that side of the house. Even Mrs. Waugh is supposed to go up in the kitchen stairs, and so she doesn't have to pass it. She must have gone across with the candle as she went to bed, said Summers. But the lieutenant didn't like being pushed into unimportance while these young men so quietly and naturally spoke together, excluding him as if he were an inferior, which they meant to do. You have an uncurtained window overlooking the sea, Mr. Sharp, he said in his military counter-jumper voice. You'll have to put a curtain to it tomorrow, said Summers to Sharp. What is your name, chimed in the lieutenant. Summers. I wasn't speaking to you, said Richard coldly, and then to Sharp with a note of contempt. That's what it is. Mrs. Waugh must just have passed with a candle. There was a silence. The wonderful watchers did not contradict. Yes, I suppose that's it, said Sharp, fretfully. We'll put a curtain up tomorrow, said Summers. The lieutenant would have liked to search the house. He would have liked to destroy its privacy. He glanced down to the music room, but Harriet, so obviously a lady, even if a hateful one, and Summers with his pale look of derision, and Sharp so impassive with his pipe, and the weedy watchers in the background knowing just how it all was, and almost ready to take sides with the gentleman against the officer. They were too much for the lieutenant. Well, the light was there, Mr. Sharp, distinctly visible from the sea, and he turned to his followers for confirmation. Oh, yes, a light plain enough, said the one who had fallen into a ditch and wanted a bit of his own back. A candle, said Sharp, with his queer musical note of derision and fretfulness. A candle just passing. You have an uncurtained window to the sea and lights were showing. I shall have to report this to headquarters. Perhaps if you write and apologize to Major Carleon, it may be passed over if nothing of the like occurs again. So they departed, and the three went back to their room, fuming with rage and mockery. They mocked the appearance and voice of the lieutenant, the appearance of the weeds, and Harriet rejoiced over the one who had fallen into a ditch. This, regardless of the fact that they knew now that some of the watchers were lying listening in the gorse bushes under the windows, and had been lying there all the evening. "'Shall you write and apologize?' said Summers. "'Apologize? No,' replied Sharp, with peevish contempt. Harriet and Summers went back home on the Monday. On the Tuesday appeared Sharp. The police had been and left him a summons to appear at the market town, charged under the Defense of the Realm Act. "'I suppose you'll have to go,' said Summers. "'Oh, I shall go,' said he. End of Chapter 12, The Nightmare, Part 2 Recording by Bryce, Youngstown.